0: This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, of Cardiology
1: Specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. Welcome to our podcast, Cardiogenic Shock, in part two. Um, my co-host is Dr. Mustafa Ahmed, Director of the Interventional and, and Structural Program at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. And our special guest today is Dr. Jason Guichard, who is an advanced heart failure specialist at Prisma Health in South Carolina. Gentlemen, well, let's talk now about the um, ECMO. Uh, Jason, would you mind maybe de- defining for us what it, what is ECMO? What are, how does it work, the different types of ECMO that we have, and, and uh, so we could really kind of uh, see how it supports you know, in the circulatory system. So ECMO is a very kind of trendy
0: an acronym. Um, it, stands, it stands for extracorporeal um, membrane oxygenation. So um, kind of in the, in the word is oxygenation. So you know, generally speaking, uh, it has an oxygenator, so it oxygenates the blood. This may be true in some configurations, but not all. So probably a better term, a better umbrella term is um, what we call ECLS, so extracorporeal life support. And then under um, ECLS or extracorporeal life support, underneath of that umbrella are two forms, two major forms um, of support, and that's VA ECMO or veno arterial, um, ECMO or veno arterial ECLS. And then VV ECMO um, or Veno-Veno, veno um ECMO. Um, so generally speaking, kind of broad sweeping strokes, VA ECMO or Veno-Arterial ECMO is used for cardiogenic shock or um, cardiac failure. So some sort of circulatory issue, whereas VV ECMO or veno Venous ECMO is usually due to a respiratory um, or breathing issue where the body is not able to oxygenate. So in VV ECMO, it's really oxygenation is kind of the the big issue. Um, And uh, you see this a lot, you know, in in the flu season, um, a little bit with this whole coronavirus pandemic, um, or that, although that's kind of fallen a little bit out of favor. So any sort of major respiratory issue where oxygenation is your main issue, that's where VV ECMO comes in. Um, As being cardiologist and heart failure cardiologists, the big thing that we deal with is VA, you know, veno arterial ECMO due to, you know, due to shock, cardiogenic shock or circulatory collapse. Um, So that is the, you know, what we'll talk about further. So the ECMO, um, in a sense, is kind of complete support. So you can think of it as basically a bypass machine that's been, you know, um, around in cardiovascular ORs for decades, where you have a very large hose or cannula that takes blood out of the venous side of the body, uh, spins it pressurizes it and then pushes it back into the body into a um, return limb that goes into the arterial side of the body which then perfuses um, which perfuses the body. So basically taking the heart completely out of the equation, um, as you might imagine with open heart surgeries or where they need to stop the, the heart beating um, or arrest the heart so that they can work on it either with fixing blockages or fixing a valve um, in the machine outside of the heart, um, basically pumps the blood. So VA ECMO is essentially kind of the same thing. It's a, it's a different circuit. It's a different unit, but the, the physiology um, and how it does it is you know virtually the same. So as you might imagine, these again are very large cannulas, So, coming back to the size being a problem. Um, so these are, um, and the venous side, anywhere from 23 to 25 French cannulas. So these are very large. On their arterial side, anywhere from 17 to 21 French. These can be done either percutaneously in a cath lab, either through the skin, or they can be done surgically with a cut down or even with an open chest, so-called central ECMO. Um, so these you know, types of things um, are great um, options for patients who are in extremis um, or who are very sick because this is complete bypass. So I, I make the saying that you can keep dead people alive on ECMO, and that's true. Um, they actually harvest organs. they call it DCD um organs um this way. Um, so this will basically perfuse a body, you know, out, you know, taking the heart out of the equation um, to keep organs perfused, um, even if the heart or brain um, for that matter is not working. Um, so if you, you know, it is the more or less kind of the end all be all. It is, you know, full support. Um, so if you're reaching for someone, you know, someone's really sick and you're kind of really wanting to stabilize them, this is generally you know, what you think about is uh, a VECMO. Um, there's several different systems. Um, CardioHELP is a very prevalent system that's out there or circuit. Um, Rotaflow um, is another. Centromag is another. So there's lots of different um, pumps or circuits that are used, but at the end of the day, the, the cannulations um, and the cannulas used are, are basically, you know, all kind of under the umbrella of ECLS or extracorporeal
1: life support. So you have a system that really takes the the venous blood, oxygenated and brings it back in the femoral arteries. Um, so has there been any physiological studies as to, you know, how well the the heart is perfused or how well the brain is perfused? Because, I mean, it's like uh, almost takes them out of the equation uh, yet. I mean, obviously, um, you know, keeps them alive and, and well.
2: You know, um the brain perfusion is important. Um, when you do have someone on ECMO, um, it's important to have arterial access, usually in the upper extremities, so we can measure directly the saturations on both sides. Um, as you can imagine, imagine your heart is pumping forward, and ECMO is shooting back up your legs. So you can reach this differential zone in the middle. The better your heart gets against your ECMO, the more that blood's coming forward, and then so you, the watershed zone can. Of move more down towards towards the leg, to where the ecmo flows can get impeded. But if the oxygenated blood coming through the heart isn't adequately oxygenated, at that point we start, you know, you start worrying about um, the the perfusion going to the top of the head, particularly on the right hand side and the upper the the uh, extremities and the head and neck. At that point, so you can measure on the right hand side, you can measure on the left hand side. You can keep SATs monitors on you can keep a headset monitors on. And so there's a lot of ways of monitoring that continuously. There have been many cases on people on ECMO for extraordinarily prolonged periods of time, weeks to months to to more, who have managed to preserve neurologic function uh, throughout that time. And so as long as de- attention to detail is kept, meticulously, the, uh, it's presumed that the blood, which is getting back up there, is, is, is oxygenated. Um, in terms of the heart itself, uh, ECMO does throw blood back up. And while technically the arteries can be filled, the place, the strain and stress placed on the heart is increased. So it's afterload. Usually, from a physiology standpoint, say we're talking about the device we were talking about before, like an impeller, that's taking blood out the heart, pushing it forward, and actually decreasing the stress and strain on the walls of the heart. ECMO is pushing that blood back up towards the heart and making it harder for the heart to pump forward. So it's actually increasing load. So different strategies are used in ECMO, whether that's a left atrial cannula, whether that's some kind of other strategy, unloading strategy, or whether it's drugs to try and pump the heart forward, are used to try and, you know, ensure some kind of forward flow, but also ideally to decrease the stress and strain on that. Um, Heart recovery is harder in that setting when the strain is increased. And so it's not ideal for a very bad heart, uh, to be on ECMO because it's, although it's keeping vital things alive, it's not allowing the heart to kind of recover or, or pump forward. And that leads to a whole host of its own, own complications. Uh, Jason, do you, you have any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah. You know, like, um, I've stressed, you know, throughout this podcast, you know, there are pros and cons to every device, you know, there. are Unfortunately, is not a miracle device out there. Maybe there will be someday, maybe there won't. So every device has their pros and cons, um, their, their goods and their bads. And it's weighing that, you know, with the individual patient and their underlying issues. Um, and then of course, where you think this is going. Um, I would say probably one of the biggest things with with um, um, VA, ECLS or extracorporeal life support um, you have to be careful, you know, because like I said before, you can, you know, keep um, dead people alive on ECMO and that can get you into very um, sticky ethical situations. So generally, you know, we like to, um, you know, reserve the ECMO for patients that have some sort of um, um, destination. So we use VA ECMO as a bridge, um, either a bridge to heart transplantation or as a bridge to heart and lung transplantation as a bridge to recovery, as a bridge to durable mechanical circular support, which is the LVADs, which we talked about on the last podcast. Sometimes you can put people on um, as a bridge to decision, um, but we generally like to kind of minimize that because we never want to catch ourselves flat footed. We always want to have a direction where a patient is going to go or have a a bailout or a plan on the back end of the, the ECMO. So if someone doesn't have a destination, um, if someone is not a transplant candidate, if someone is not a an, a durable LVAD candidate, um, if we do not believe that the patient is going to recover, then those would all be red flags to maybe shy away from from via ECMO and maybe choose a different temporary device um, because some of these you know ethical issues can be um, can be difficult for families, can be difficult for providers, and doing your best, which is not always possible. Believe me, I've been. I've had to have these very tough, uh, conversations and these very tough ethical, ethical issues because you, know, you put someone on ECMO thinking one thing and unfortunately it didn't turn out that way and, and you're left with some difficult decisions, but the best that you can on the front end, you know, having a game plan for the patient, you know, if they are unable to come off ECMO is probably one of the most important things um, about ECMO is deciding to put them on, um, and, uh. Uh, making sure that you're, you know, making an informed decision, and that the the patient, the family, um, are um, have reasonable expectations and are aware of the decision making as well.
1: So this is a obviously a very tough decision. It's not one man's decision or one woman's decision. Uh, can you give us maybe an idea of what is your ECMO team composed of? And um, you know, so that obviously you have all these kind of issues that you have to discuss. Who composes your team in your facility?
2: So a large team, multidisciplinary, that meets off. And in each case, um, you really want, you know, this is a topic of ongoing discussion at our institution, but you really do want to have as much of that team involved in the initial decision to go on to ECMA as possible. Sometimes it's very hard because you have someone that's just lost a pulse immediately in front of you. And if it's in a procedure, you often... You need to put together, and so even before procedures that are high risk, now we like to stop, think, and talk about talk to members of that team to say this is what the potential plans are. Do we think there's a bailout or not? Do we think there's a recovery chance? Do we think there's a plan B? Um, and what does everyone think on this? So, so who does that team evolve? So there's ECMO specialists that we have. Usually one uh, kind of heart failure surgeon or, a, and, or and a critical care cardiologist, so a cardiologist that's been trained in critical care, or, of course, a heart failure specialist that's had training in ECMO, someone like a advanced heart failure like Jason, who's, who's, who's had dedicated training and experience in managing that. And then you'll have interventional cardiology that often get involved, particularly from a procedural or the eCPR standpoint, to go ahead and be available and talk about strategies to go and do that, and then we'll have the pulmonary component of the ECMO team, the pulmonary specialist that's also trained. So our ECMO team at UAB actually comprises all of the above. Um, at any one time, there's one of those critical care cardiology or pulmonary people. There's a heart failure surgeon or heart failure specialist. There's a, a surgical specialist. And then there's the perfusion team who all go ahead and, uh, and put all that together. I'd say that's, a, that's an example of a very complex um, and a multidisciplinary approach, uh, it can be done successfully, I'm sure, in places without all that, Um, as long as there are very well-versed teams of specialists. And then the nursing, you know, when you make the decision to go on ECMO, you make the decision to go and do one-to-one ECMO specialist nursing at the bedside, and people that are well-trained in dealing with that also.
0: Yes, we're very similar. So we've of broke it down into kind of three main things that the patient needs so the you know the patient you know we have a a cannulator um, that is part of the rounding team so someone that manages the access site so it was either the patient or the provider that did the cannulation or um, at least knows how to to manage the access site whether or not the access site needs to be um, you know rearranged um, or if there's a bleeding complications that need to be fixed or ischemia complications need to be fixed so someone Um, that is aware of how to cannulate and, um, and alter cannulations um, is always part of the, the rounding team. Um, The second part is kind of the the patient management side of things. So someone to manage um, the circuit itself um, um, is uh, always on the the rounding team. And then the third or uh, the third out of four would be kind of the overall patient management. So if the patient's on the vent, the patient needs antibiotics, kind of your critical care um, person, pulmonary critical care, would fit that bill. And then of course, like I was talked about before is the ECMO specialist. So this is the RN or perfusionist that is at the bedside that, um, manages the kind of minute to minute hour to hour, um, um, aspects of the, uh, of the circuit. So those four people kind of form the core group of, um, people that, you know, manage the patient as a whole. Um, you know, we have overlap between those, you know, some of our CV surgeons, you know, they cannulate, but they also can manage the circuit. Some of them can't, you know, some of our pulmonary critical care people want nothing to do with the circuit and we'll do the, the critical side of things. Um, and we'll need a, either a cardiologist or a heart failure cardiologist to manage the circuit. So based on patient on people's training and comfort levels, there's a little bit of overlap and maybe even sometimes some redundancy with those four, um, you know, four areas but regardless, you know all four of those areas need to be addressed um, and managed um, each day you know for, for each ECMO patient
2: you know this is it's particularly important because the list of complications of these mechanical circulatory support devices is is, is bigger than the list of potential benefits
1: well, let's talk about that. What are the complications, Mustafa:
2: Okay, so you know let's start with access, so you're going in and you're placing the device, often through the leg or the arm. And you have to ensure is adequately suited to have that device. Otherwise you're going to compromise the blood flow to the leg. So ischemia of the limbs, whether that's the upper limb, the lower limb, not getting enough blood supply uh, can can result in loss of a limb. And so that needs to be managed well with with consideration of placement of vascular input or consideration of routine uh, consideration of what we call distal perfusion devices. So things that circuits that can go and address What's going on in the leg, but a lot of that can be just attended to by just knowing how big it is beforehand and having an adequate plan and site selection and size selection of the of the device. Um, the position of ble- the problem of bleeding. So these devices are put through large, you know, we're making large holes in the leg, and and the bleeding there and strategies to mitigate bleeding are very important. Looking at those things closely, and of course, when you move a device, then that that can to, to, to say prevent bleeding, that can result in moving where the device is itself. So that's, that's, that's another bleeding, a, a, another issue. The next is placement and positioning. You put something somewhere, but that can move. And even these things moving mill- centimeters, you know, millimeters can result in different uh, things that can go wrong with them. When, when you have balloon pumps, the circuit setup, the, the tank that's required to kind of help the balloon pump, the EKG triggering, and all those things need to be, Uh, understood and watched closely when you're putting an impeller in, the chance for hemolysis so the blood as it moves through the device to get torn up and the blood cells get get damaged um, releasing substances that can become toxic to the body the kidneys the the bloodstream and uh, those need to be picked up carefully the urine needs to be watched closely levels of blood markers need to be watched because you may need to turn the pump down or change the pump positioning or maybe put a larger pump in or the newer device newer generation that can prevent the hemolysis. When it comes to ECMO and all the rest of it, you know, perfusion to the not just the lower extremities, but also the brain needs to be ensured. And, and that needs to be watched closely. And that's why this team of specialists that's watching this thing needs to be able to watch all this like a hawk and activate the appropriate input. And the more people you have in your team that are well-versed with not just noticing, but talking through these often several times a day, and then coming up with strategies to mitigate these. When you put someone with ECMO, the heart failure specialist may look in or the cardiologist may look in and say, hey, what's our bridge? What's our chance of, what's our way to ensure that the heart is being adequately cared for, even though the body is? What is our strategy to try and come off those things? Because if those aren't all paid meticulous attention to, the list of complications, which we just mentioned, can continue to grow.
0: No, that was a very exhaustive um, um, discussion about all the complications, and all the things we need to think about um, really on a daily basis, if not a, a twice a day basis, um, because one of the things that will, you know, kind of um, undo all the good that you try to do for a patient is a complication, um, especially in limb ischemia or stroke. Um, you know, those are things that are difficult to, to take back and very difficult to come back from. Um, so your mortality you know, increases substantially whenever there is a limb complication um, or whenever there's a stroke. So, you know, being very mindful of, you know, complications and and being quick to uh, address them is critically important.
2: And sometimes, right, Jason, these can get very complicated. For example, you've got a patient, you're on a ECMO or an impeller, you suddenly develop a condition known as, you know, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Uh, your platelets are going low, but you can't really thin the blood more, but you, so you need to make decisions on how thin to keep blood, but then you need to use different and stronger agents to do that, which and then you can have a whole host of bleeding complications or strokes that are associated. So you need to watch the neurologic function very closely. I mean, it's amazing how, you know, you get into the field and, and you start managing these patients, then you know, even after a number of years experience, there's not a single week you're not rounding on an ECMO patient now where you're not learning something new. And that experience is important now, you know, as new people are trained to to ensure they don't make the same mistakes that, that a lot of us that people have had made for, you know, years.
1: So that's my next question. Let's say, you know, if, uh, from the point of view of the patient and the family, you know, what does it mean to be on ECMO? I mean, uh, can can you move? Uh, you know, there is all the, the positions, you know, to kind of help the lungs. Uh, what kind of medications do I need? You know, while I'm on ECMO, um, how do I look like, you know, uh, when I'm on ECMO? Uh, Are my kidneys functioning all right? Or am I going to need some, you know, uh, renal kind of therapy? Uh, What does it mean for a patient's perspective?
0: Yeah, that's always a great question and and also very hard to answer. Um, So what it is from a patient perspective, we can go from moving. Um, A lot of the moving ability is going to be largely dependent on your cannula configuration is what we call it. So whether or not you have, you know, tubes in your legs, do you have tubes in your chest? Do you have tubes in your in your neck? A lot of the the decision and comfort level with ambulation or moving um, is largely dependent on where where the tubes are connected. Obviously if you have a lot of tubes in your leg, you know, walking would be problematic. Even sitting up would be problematic. Um, but if you have tubes kind of uh, above the shoulders or in your neck, then sometimes getting up and and walking um, is uh, actively encouraged. So a lot of it depends on um, the the cannula configuration um, and exactly what caused you know a patient to be on ECLS um, to begin with. Um, as far as other things that may be added to a patient, um, you know these patients are very sick, so as you might imagine, having kidney damage. Requiring dialysis is always a possibility. Um, Being on multiple drips, whether they be antibiotics um, or other kind of vasoactive substances um, to keep your blood pressure stable are always a possibility. So generally, it can be quite intimidating uh, being in a a room in a patient with ECMO because there's lots of machines, lots of beeping, maybe even a ventilator, depending on if there's um, lung compromise or respiratory um, compromised or not. So it can be quite overwhelming for for a, a family um, and a patient. Um, but just rest assured that all of those things are needed um, and all there to help kind of support the patient through this very difficult process. Um, but it can definitely be overwhelming from a patient
1: and family perspective um, at the beginning. Um, also, you know, from a patient's perspective, How do you know whether I'm doing better? Uh, Mustafa mentioned a little bit about that earlier on. You know, how do you know um, that, uh, you know, obviously you mentioned you could stay on ECMO several weeks, even sometimes even months. Uh, How do you know it's time to wean off the ECMO? Or How do I know my heart is kind of getting strong enough so that I could really come off ECMO and maybe move to, you know, either, you know, totally removal and I'm doing well and plan to go home or, or whether I need, you know, an LVAD? Yes. So we can talk
0: about as things get better. So we've talked about a lot of negative things, right? When someone is very sick and having a hard time and needing all these things. So now we can talk about, you know, hopefully we're on the downhill slide. So things are now getting better. So what to expect. So as you might imagine, as things get better, things get peeled off, right? So there's less drips. Um, and, uh, you know, less machines around. So specifically with ECMO um, or really any um, temporary mechanical circulatory support device, you know, there are definitely, there are different ways and different um, thinking about weaning or de-escalating um, temporary mechanical circulatory support. But some general rules um, to go by is, uh, you know, stable hemodynamics, you know, off vasopressors and off inotropes mainly um you know no heart rhythm issues no no ventricular arrhythmias no um, ventricular tachycardia no ventricular fibrillation um and at that point when things are hemodynamically stable um usually with the guidance of a swan gans catheter um we will begin to reduce the ecmo flow or reduce the support that whatever temporary device that you have whether that's balloon pump or impella or or VA ECMO, begin to decrease, slowly decrease that support, slowly decrease that cardiac output that the device is providing to see how the patient's body um, responds and reacts. If uh, we're able to decrease the amount of support on the device and and the patient's body um, is able to um, um, work on its own, um, keep the blood pressure elevated, the heart continues to work effectively, As we continue to bring that support down, then that's excellent. That's exactly what we want to see. That means that the body is being successfully weaned or successfully de-escalated from mechanical circuitory support. So we eventually get to some of the lowest settings on the device, um, what we call rest settings. Usually in the ECMO world, that's a a flow of about 1.2 to 1.5 liters We generally kind of watch patients for a few to several hours, depending on the situation. And if on that lowest level of support or or what we call P2, we're setting on P2 for impellas. um, And if the patient's blood pressure and hemodynamics um, and uh, drip requirements stay stable and everything appears well and that the patient has improved or recovered, then at that point we would consider Um, um, either decannulating, so taking out the ECMO cannulas or removing the impella or removing the temporary mechanical circulatory support devices that were initially placed to support the patient. Another metric that's often used um, that I actually find very helpful is the cardiac power output, which we have talked about before. Um, This is a calculated value that that physicians use um, based on hemodynamics. uh, Your mean arterial pressure times cardiac output, which can be taken from a swan GANS catheter divided by a constant 451. And as long as that cardiac power output is greater than 0.6 watts, um, then uh, there's a, a high probability or a very good chance um, that the patient will be able to be successfully weaned um, from whatever device they have. So there are objective measures, not only subjective, but objective measures that we can use. And there are others. There are algorithms out there to wean ECMO, um, but those are just some kind of general guidelines that are used. And usually physicians will tell patients this. Physicians will tell families this. And as a patient or a family member, you really have to kind of look heavily to the provider um, to give you the necessary information to let you know how well or not well something is doing. And as providers, we need to be uh, remember that and make sure that we tell patients, um, you know, as they go along, you know, if things are improving and Um, How things are looking in order to you know give them to keep them informed about
1: their own progress. What happens if I don't get any better? What are what kind of options do we have? You know, with someone who's on ECMO. Yes. So options
0: from a circulatory support standpoint, or from a a cardiogenic standpoint, there's really only um, two options at this point. One would be heart transplantation, which uh, we will be talking about here um, soon in another podcast. And then the second would be um, LVAD or durable mechanical circulatory support or LVAD, LVAD, which we talked about in the previous podcast. So if your body is unable to be weaned from VA um, ECMO or VA ECLS, you know, those are really um, the only two options that you have. There are no, there's no way to go home on VA ECMO. This is a hospital-based um, um, type of support. So the only options, you know, if you're unable to come off ECMO um, is either recovery, you know, getting better. Maybe you just need need more time, you know, for the body to heal or heart transplantation or LBAD. Um, Outside of those three options, um, you know, there's really no other options. And sometimes some very tough um, decisions and some very tough conversations need to be made at that point.
2: You know, um, these devices are incredible technological advances. Every year, we have a new iteration of something which, again, from a technological standpoint, is mind-blowing. But these are not miracle devices. Um, These are not devices that can bring people that are already dead and suddenly regenerate uh, organs that are dysfunctional and beyond repair. These are not devices that can suddenly, when you've started 50 meters behind the finish line because of all the damage done already – behind the start line, sorry, because of all the damage already, that can suddenly make things normal again. And setting those expectations at the beginning of use, discussing those with the family. We just talked now about you know, what the, the, the painful nature of some of the decisions to come off support. But really, the best way to address this is a very realistic and um, transparent approach up front when even using these things. And just because these technologies are available um, does not mean we should be using them in in every case we can. Putting a device in, to me, is arguably the easiest part of, uh, of doing this. The thoughtful nature of the entire process, the complexities and an understanding of that, that's much harder to do, and that is the key, actually, to successful use of this. And as we talked about, hopefully the next 10 years sees a movement towards enhanced data collection, um, you know, initiation and completion of trials, and leaves us in a position where, along with the technological advances and the, tech and the training of people that can put in and run these devices, we know who to use them in, who not to use them in, and can just lead to much more successful outcomes that can help a lot more people without many of these complications.
1: Very well said. Thank you, Dr. Ahmed. Well, after all, you know, these uh, mechanical circulatory devices are there to let the heart muscle rest and heal. Um, Dr. Ahmed, uh, Dr. Dr. Guichard, I want to thank you very much for, uh, you know, taking the time and discussing these devices and support for our patients. Thank you.
0: To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social
1: media by searching MyHeart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.